Oh well, and, and who is and the guy, the old guy? What's his name? Uh, Jack Trout. Oh, Jack, Jack Trout. That's yeah. That's an amazing name. <laughs> Dang. Uh, I mean, did he did he come up with that himself, or is that his actually given name? I, you know, I think I think he changed his yeah. name. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> At I, one point. <laughs> that's amazing. See, this is the guy. I gotta gotta get this guy on odds. I mean, Jack Trout. That's amazing. That was Jared Shaken telling a story about Jack Trout. Another great Fly Fishing Founders episode today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. Hey, how's it going uh, today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. If you get a chance, head over to uh, wetflyswing.com slash Facebook and join our community so you can ask a question for an upcoming guest. Today we dig into Northern California fly fishing uh, with Jared Shaken from uh, Shaken's uh, Guide Service. We jump into a little bit on the Yuba River, talk about steelhead, and uh, hear about some of the flies and tips that have helped uh, Jared be successful there. So uh, we even talk about uh, Mike Tyson and, uh, and uh, Roy Jones Jr., a little boxing action. Before we get started, I wanted to take a moment to thank our sponsors. SoFly Gear, headed up by 17-year-old James Carlin of the U.S. Youth Fly Fishing Team, has a buttery, soft, quick-drying apparel line that I've been loving. Head over to wetflyswing.com SoFly and support James and the podcast today. The Fly Fishing and Tying Journal has an exceptional fall edition that's out right now. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash FTJ to support the great work Craig and the gang have created just for you. Again, that's wetflyswing.com slash FTJ and also wetflyswing.com slash S-O-F-L-Y. Uh, so without further ado, let's just jump into it. Here's Jared Shaken from Shanked Rods. How's it going, Jared? Doing great, Dave. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on here. We've uh, we chatted a while back. Uh, it's been, I guess, months now. Uh, <laughs> we're going through our our COVID yeah. still, but uh, <laughs> uh, we we were chatting about some some of the stuff more on, I guess, more on the business side. But it was interesting because you've got a successful uh, guiding business. So we're going to dig into that. Um, you know what you're doing out in NorCal, um, but maybe you could just start us off and talk about how you first got into fly fishing, and then take us into your guiding business. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. So I uh, grew up in Colorado. I, uh, the town I'm from is a small town about halfway between Vail and Aspen. And uh, my dad put a fly rod in my hand when I was about seven years old. So uh, I've been fly fishing off and on for years and years at this point. And uh, a few years ago, decided to make it my business. Um, you know, a little to backtrack just a little bit. I was, uh, you know, grew up in Colorado, fly fished everywhere. And by the time I made it to college, you know, I had kind of taken a break, you know, as most people do when yeah. you get to college, you have, uh, maybe some different priorities. Yep. <laughs> um, but by the time I moved out to California, um, we were living in the Bay area for a little while and it was the first time I had lived near the ocean. And so, um, I, total interest in fishing was just completely renewed after we moved out here when I realized I could catch, you know, more than just trout. <laughs> so yeah. I started saltwater fishing. I started bass fishing. Um, of course I would go up to the Sierras and get my fix of dry fly fishing action and uh, small stream fishing. 
And then I really got into steelheading and uh, definitely caught the bug on that one. Mm-hmm. And so now you, with your guiding, you do a little a little steelhead, a little trap. I mean, what, what do you f- focus most of your time doing now for guiding? Um, it's, yeah, trout and steelhead are the main things that I go for. Um, it's, yeah, a little bit more of my wheelhouse. I do run some trips for some other species. Like we have a pretty good striper run up here in the Sacramento area, so fishing for striper in July and August. Um, but summer steelhead, winter steelhead and trout are really my, my main game. That's it. That's it. And you, I mean, you obviously you're right in the heart of some pretty good, and we can talk about that a little bit, maybe focus on one of the rivers that you hit up most, but it's interesting, you know, talking about, you know, becoming a guide, how, how did that happen? There must've been some point where, I'm not sure what you were doing before, but but why why did you jump into? And I'm not sure if you're also full time guiding, but how, how did that all happen? Yeah, no, great question. So I, um, yeah, I went to college, uh, graduated in 2010 uh, with degrees in uh, HR and marketing, and um, then about a year and a half later, ended up going back to an accounting program. So. I always knew I wanted to be a business owner. I didn't know quite what my business was going to be, Um, but I found myself working in accounting, doing commercial property management accounting, and did that for about eight years. And a few years ago, my the company I was working for uh, sold, and we all got laid off. And I was pretty burned out on accounting anyway at the time. Just working that desk job just became such a grind. And uh, so many hours and not enough not yeah. enough fulfillment out of it. And uh, my wife could tell that I was really burned out at the time when I was laid off. And so we were talking one night and she said, well, you know, why don't you do something you want to do? And that was kind of the, the switch. Hmm. I had been thinking that I... Uh, might want to consider getting into guiding because I had guided a little bit in high school as a summer job in Colorado, mostly whitewater rafting, a um, little bit of fishing uh, because I was on the river all the time growing up. And so I already kind of knew the game and knew what I needed to do to get into the guide aspect. And so when I was presented with the opportunity of uh, finding something new and not having a job, I jumped right in. Hmm. There you go. So you just, so you just kind of, well, and you, you had the, a little bit of the business background, which is probably different than a lot of people where they probably have the fly fishing and then learn, figure out the business stuff. But how hard has it been now? You've been doing it a couple years, right? How, how challenging has it been to make it, uh, you know, turn into a business and, and, and that, that whole thing? You know, I, I don't want (laughs) to, I don't want to um, be too optimistic for your listeners here because it was certainly a struggle, um, but it was easier than I thought it would be, actually. Hmm. Really? <laughs> um, it, yeah, it might have to do with the way that the guide uh, business is structured out here in California. Um, we all work as subcontractors for all of the shops and the charter services, and so it gives us a lot of flexibility to um, get trips through all different kinds of channels. So, um, you know, I get some of my business through the fly shops, not the fly shop, but some of the fly shops in the area because Reading is only about three hours from us. And I do run some trips on the lower sack there. Um, 
And uh, there are some great charter services, some great fly shops out here. And they're all you know, really open and willing to uh, take on a new guide and work with you as long as you're willing to work with them and play nice. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, so that's interesting. So basically, you make a local connection, and what what is what is one of the shops? Can you talk about the um, uh, like the shops you work with, or, or is there a bunch of shops, or just a couple? Uh, well, so there are a few shops that I do some kind of loose work with. Um, there's Fish First up in Chico. There is Fly Fishing Specialties here in Sacramento. And the main one that I work with, and these days I actually work one day a week in the shop um, because they like to have a guide oh, cool. there, um, you know, to as a customer service aspect. Um, and that's Keeney's Fly Shop in Sacramento. Keeney's. How, how do you spell that? K-I-E-N-E apostrophe S. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Keeney's. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Okay. So we got a little background there. And then, you know, I want to dig into today on dry fly fishing where we're focusing on a little bit of a dry fly season and, and I'm, I'm thinking you're probably hitting is it mostly rainbows is that is that the species that you're fishing yes. for? yeah so um yeah maybe you can take us on I'm not sure if you have a river specifically when you hear dry flies that you think of that you fish you'd like to talk about but is there a river or a hatch or something you'd like to dig into yeah absolutely um so there's actually two rivers that I guide on that uh, both offer different types of dry fly activity at different times of the year. So we've got the North Yuba River um, up in a town called Downeyville, and that's in the Sierras. It's very much your typical small stream type of fishery. Um, so a lot of smaller dry flies, dry dropper rigs are one of my favorite ways to fish up there because the water's not super deep, so you don't really need to... Uh, yeah. get get down to them and that dropper really helps you know to get you in the top three feet of the water column to target fish yep. um, and then the other one is the lower yuba river outside of marysville um, which is kind of an interesting uh river because we have a hopper bite in the summer which is super fun um hammering the banks with a big bushy dry fly mm-hmm. as we're drifting down um and that's super fun. And then also in the winter on the lower Yuba River, usually in February, um, we have the Squala stonefly hatch. And we can actually get some dry fly action in the middle of winter. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah, the Squala. And that's a, that's a hatch that's, uh, I mean, there's certain places where it, 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 uh, it's on and some places it's not. I mean, and that was actually a note I had. What, describe the Squala. Is that, that's a stonefly, right? Yes, it's. Um, I believe it's either the second or third largest species of stonefly. The the winged adults are a good two inches long, like almost as big as a salmon fly. As a salmon fly, wow! So they're giants. And in February, that is crazy too. So, so why February? Because in February, you kind of think maybe um, you know blue winged olives, a lot of and cold and stuff like that. What, what's the weather like there in February? Um, we have pretty mild winters down here in the valley. Um, in the evenings, it'll get down to mid to high 30s with uh, about f- mid 50s during the day. Um, so after we get some rain, it actually warms up the water just a little bit. And, you know, I'm, I'm no entomologist. Sure, so <laughs> sure. You'll, you'll have to forgive me a oh, little yeah. bit on the science here. 
Um, but yeah, something about the life cycle of those squalas. So right now they're in the water as in their nymph form. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the nymphs are, you know, an inch and a half long. And so something about the timing, once it starts to warm up, at the end of the winter, which for us down here is about February, maybe late February, um, those first couple of warm weeks, those squalas will crawl out onto the rocks and hatch. Yep, that's it. And then they're, you're, I mean, describe that once they hatch, or what, what, what's it like when they're your fish and dries? What 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 patterns are you using, and how are you catching fish? Yeah, so. Um, you know, the, the hatch, I would describe it. It's not super prolific. Like you've seen some of those, you know, like a hex hatch where there's just insects yeah. everywhere. There's smaller numbers than that. Um, but we're using, using pretty big flies. Um, I like either the, the chubby Chernobyl mm -hmm. or the mini Chernobyl are kind of my two go-tos something with a foam back and a big white wing. That's uh, really easy to see on the water. Yeah. And, Mostly, um, our rivers have relatively short riffle sections and then pretty big flat runs with lower moving current. Mm -hmm. And most of the time the fish are going to be concentrated in those uh, types of areas in the winter. Um, you know, they prefer those kind of deeper pools and a little bit more cover, uh, during the winter. So, they'll kind of push out into the tail outs or onto the edges. Um, and sometimes right behind the ripples in the heads, you know, they'll yeah. hang out behind the rocks. And so we're working our dry flies kind of all in through those sections. Gotcha. So, and are you on the lower, are you exclusively floating? Or are there people that are waiting and fishing for doing this or is it all float? Uh, no, there's actually pretty decent weight access. Um, it's a pretty good DIY river. Um, and I send a lot of folks that, you know, come on, come on floats with me. I make sure to, uh, kind of point out some of the spots that I would hit if I was fishing from the bank. One of the things I really try to do with my guide business is give people the tools to go out and have a good day on their own, whether or not they're with me, because yeah. I'm trying to create more fly fishers. That's right. That's right. Well, what if somebody came to the shop right now and, and well, let's just say it's February, you know, or in the squall hatches on you know, what would you tell them? I guess you'd give them a chubby Chernobyl and you'd say, uh, head up river and just look for a pool and look for, I mean, are you, and are you casting under, you know, mostly under trees or are they right out in the open? Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, they, well, so because the stone flies, um, don't hatch directly out of the water, they crawl up onto the banks to hatch. You want to be targeting, uh, pretty close to the bank. Uh, there's not a ton of tree cover, uh, so to speak, this river has been pretty heavily dredged over the years. So um, you're pretty much just fishing around the larger rocky su substrate and you don't have a ton of overhanging trees or anything like that to target. So mostly rocks is where you want to be looking. Oh, okay. So so any any sort of structure and there's uh, you cast around structure and then I mean, what else? Anything else to know about it? Is it pretty much just grab a fly, throw it on there and the fish are, you know, and they're on it or is it is it a little more uh, work than that? Uh, you know, they're they're pretty willing to take a fly at that point. They key into uh, into those squalas pretty quickly once the hatch starts. Um, so there aren't a ton of secrets about that, but probably the biggest thing is just making sure you get that, you know, really nice drag free drift. Um, so having the right presentation is pretty important. 
Oh, okay. So just in, and in the drift boat, that makes it easy, right? You guys are drifting down and you're just kind of, you're, you're moving with the fly. Is that how you do it? Casting towards the bank? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Casting towards the bank. And then what I'll often be doing is, uh, rowing the boat back up and, you know, really hitting a spot a few times to make sure that we're kind of picking it apart and getting into each of those little nooks and crannies behind the rocks. Um, so I like to give people a few, a few passes over an area where I know are holding fish just to make sure we're, uh, picking up any active fish that might be in there. Gotcha. Okay, cool. And then when you're doing it, are you doing the, if you have two people, one person in the front, one person in the back, just like, you know, fishing your way down? Yes. Okay, cool. Nice. All right. Then, so you have the squall and that you said that's the winner. And, and is all, is that also on other rivers? Is that up into the north or is that just kind of the lower Yuba mostly? Uh, you know, there are squalas kind of scattered throughout some of the various rivers. Um, but as far as where I run trips, um, that's going to be the only one that has a squala hatch. Okay, cool. And, uh, so now, right now it's, uh, what are we, yeah, we're November. So if I was to come there and are you, are you guiding throughout the whole year round? I am. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and I should have mentioned, um, you know, when you asked me about getting started in my first year, I definitely still had a part-time job. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I was thinking, you know, you, when you, and actually you, you, it's funny, you, you look a little like, um, just, you know, the guy, the barbless guys, the barbless podcast. Yeah. 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 Um, Chad and I'm, th- I'm trying to think of the co-host, uh, I'm drawing a blank, but we, we have, you know, we've, we've been, I've been on their show. They've been on mine. Uh, Alderson, Nick, uh, Nick Hanna, right? Um, yeah. You remind me of Nick a little bit because Nick was actually, I think he still is uh, an accountant or he's in the business field or maybe it's real estate. But anyways, he still does that as his full-time job. And then he guides a little bit on the side and he he loves his, you know, he loves his full-time job. So it kind of works. And I, I think I asked him that, like, well, why, you know, why not go all in on guiding or become a full-time guide? And you know, and he, he, he mentioned it like diversifying is why he loves it because it's like, just like, you know, money, you got to diversify to be successful. I mean, do you feel like, you know, now that you're in it just a few years here, do you feel like, are, are there any worries about, you know, having all your eggs in one basket and, and not having anything to go back on? Um, not so much, you know, I'm, I'm more of the belief that if you're going to do something, you need to really commit to it and be intentional about the work that you're doing. Um, so, you know, I've noticed that while I was working part-time in accounting, um, you know, I just some, some basic bookkeeping type of stuff, I was getting pulled in kind of too many different directions and I would be, you know, have a project for my accounting job and be spending, uh, you know, three days a week on that and a couple weeks go by and I turn around and say to myself, well, man, you, you haven't done any marketing, like you All need right. to be building your business. And so, um, as my guide business started ramping up, it's been easier to kind of keep the momentum going for me by going more all in on it. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's cool. No, it's a, it's a cool story. I think for anybody listening that wants to get into it, you know, it sounds like, uh, well, you know, you got to be in the right place in the right time, but it sounds like, uh, you know, it's, it's doable. Um, well, so what else? So, so we're talking about, I mean, if we talk about dry flies, you've got, uh, the Yuba there, are there other rivers that you're fishing dry flies or is this mostly on, on these, these couple of rivers or this mainly the lower Yuba? 
Um, well, the lower Yuba, and then I spend pretty much my whole summer up in the Sierras. Once once the temperature gets to be about 110 degrees down here oh, yeah. in the Sacramento area, I'm not uh, not super interested in sticking around. So um, I head up head up into the Sierras, and I do the North Yuba, and that's um, dry fly fishing pretty much all summer. We will run some indicator nymph rigs through the really deep pools or when the water gets a little bit warmer mm -hmm. uh, because the North Yuba is a freestone stream. So it's um, highly variable in its temperatures um, mm -hmm. as far as the water temp goes. So once it gets, you know, once the water gets above, you know, 65 degrees, there's not a whole lot of dry fly action happening, but oh, gotcha. you can catch the morning and evening hatches and uh, find some really excellent fishing. Nice. And, and what is, so I guess we're talking now we're more in the summertime, but if you're, if you're doing it, what, what are the big hatches in the mornings and evenings? We have some, uh, we have some PMDs, some PEDs, um, caddis hatches uh, are pretty, pretty prolific. So I'm yep. normally throwing some sort of a caddis pattern. Yep. That's right. Um, seems, seems to be a little bit more consistent than trying to go into, uh, some of the mayflies. It just, and the fish on the North Yuba river are really interesting with it being a freestone stream. There's really uh, the insects are much larger than you would find on a tailwater. Hmm. So, you know, throwing those uh, kind of smaller dry flies seem to be a little less effective than getting something really big and bushy out there, like a big elk hair caddis, hmm. you know, size 12, no maybe. Kidding. Yeah. And I uh, love fishing with that mini Chernobyl up there because it, it can be a caddis, it can be a beetle, it can be a hopper, it can be whatever. Yeah, I don't think the fish are too picky about that one. No, no, and, and this one you're you're walking, uh, walking and wading up there. Yes, yeah, that's all walk and wade trips uh, on that river. Most places the water is only three or four feet deep, with a few fifteen foot pools. And what I love about that river, it reminds me a lot of uh, the Frying Pan River back in Colorado, actually, where the highway goes right along a 20 mile stretch of the river. So great to explore. You can just drive along the road until you find a spot that looks cool. And mm -hmm. as long as you can get down to the water, you can go fish it. Oh, wow. And how is the, during the summertime, is there a decent amount of pressure? Can you find some spots to, you know, f find some seclusion? You know what? I think that, that the North Yuba is one of the most underrated rivers in California. Hmm. I go some days and I don't see another angler. Wow. I can often go to the same spots on multiple days guiding because I know it's not going to get blown out by another person in between when I fish right. it one day and the next day. Wow. Um, so, it, yeah, it's really, really interesting like that. Now, this year with COVID, I saw more anglers out there than I had ever seen before. But we're still only talking about maybe... Uh, 10 other people a day for this whole stretch. Gotcha. Uh, do you see other, and are there other guides up there guiding? Um, actually there are very few there. Um, when I started doing research on which rivers I wanted to guide on, uh, as I started up my business, I pretty quickly realized that there are only a couple of guides that run trips there. Hmm. And, uh, I actually work with one of them 
and he's he's an older guy and so he is pretty much at this point subbed out sure. all of the North Yuba trips to me. Oh wow. Um, so at this point, there are only it is a permitted river because it's on national forest land. Um, so as far as I know, there are only three guides in California with permits to run trips on that river, oh, myself no included. Yeah. Oh, well, and, and who is in the guy, the old guide? What's his name? Uh, Jack Trout. Oh, Jack, Jack Trout. That's yeah. That's an amazing name. <laughs> Dang. Uh, I mean, did he did he come up with that himself or is that his actually given name? I, you know, I think I think he changed his yeah. name. That's awesome. <laughs> At I, one point, <laughs> that's amazing. See, this is the guy. I gotta gotta get this guy on odds. I mean, Jack Trout. That's amazing. So, so Jack, did he was he kind of a like? Has he been a mentor for you? Uh, yeah, I would say so. He definitely um, was super helpful in bringing me up to speed and giving me trips when I first started going, um, and. That's really the only river that we work together on. He's out of the Shasta area. So, um, you know, the few trips that he does these days, he's on uh, on the Klamath or on the yeah. Upper Sack. Um, and yeah. he rows a raft. Oh, he does? And Yeah. How, and and, he, he's an older guy? Yeah, he's in his, I think, late 50s now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. something like that. Um, but it was just too much for him to, you know, be driving. I think it's a solid two and a half hours for him to get down to the North Yuba from his house. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So a little bit of a trek and, um, those types of trips, they're mostly half day trips that I run up there. Uh, the town of Downeyville is very, um, you know, small mountain town. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a huge mountain bike scene there. So you get a lot oh, of mountain nice. bike traffic. There's some resorts and uh, a lot of tourism flows through there. And yeah. so a lot of the folks that I guide on that river are, um, you know, never fly fished before, would love to get out and try it for a half day and maybe get on some fish and, you know, learn what it's all about. Yeah. And is that a ski? Is that also like near a ski town? It's not. Yeah, it's it's not. Um, pretty much, yeah, pretty much the other direction from uh, Tahoe, from if Tahoe. you were going to be going up that way. It's along the way. It's closer to Truckee, actually. Oh, yeah, Truckee. Okay. That's cool. Yeah, I was just thinking uh, Tom Bai was on recently, and he was, it, keep, it comes up quite a bit, the fact that you get these ski towns where people are, are, have some connection to the ski industry, but then they also become guides. So oh, yeah. yeah. No, we, we can talk about that, too, because yeah. I worked for um, the retail arm of uh, Vail Resorts for oh, about yeah. 10 years. Oh, right, and right. I was a, yeah. yeah, I was a mountain bike mechanic in the summer and a ski boot fitter in the winter. Oh, wow. and, uh, I've skied skied semi professionally for a few years and. Okay. After five orthopedic surgeries, <laughs> I uh, yep. ha- had to hang up the sticks. Man, you're, you're like, are you, are you, but you're able to walk still. So that's, that's good. Yes. I can still walk Man. and I can still row. You're and like, still fish. You're like that, uh, that boxer almost that like you, you almost stayed in it too long, right? Where you got brain damage. Yeah. Pretty- <laughs> <laughs> Damn. I was, uh, I was listening to, uh, you know, occasionally I do like listen to Joe Rogan. You know, he's got some guests on. He had, uh, you remember Roy Jones Jr.? I do, yeah. I'm not sure if you're a big <laughs> boxing fan, but man, I used to, my dad loved boxing. And uh, I, so I, I watched boxing when I was a kid. And yeah, I mean, it's amazing. So that guy's coming back. I think he's fighting Tyson again. 
Yeah, I had heard something about that recently. I was like, wow, he's still around, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's more. I think it's more like. Um, Oh, you know, it's like exhibition sort of thing. Yeah. But but still, oh, yeah. I mean, Tyson, you never know. You get in the ring with that guy, he might bite your ear or something. Yeah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> <Not> right. <laughs> it could be crazy. And now a quick word from our sponsors. The Fly Fishing and Tying Journal has a great fall edition that's out right now. You can find Lucas Stevens, who visits Winston Fly Rods in the fall edition, for an insider look and a rare interview with Ted Leeson. Patrick Wall pays homage to Harry Lemire's tight in hand Atlantic salmon flies. Boots Allen takes us to the pond with a master class in Stillwater. Dennis Daba also travels to Scotland in search of uh, salmon. Good to have him uh, him on here. I'd love if you could stop by uh, right now and uh, just press pause. Head over to wetflyswing.com FTJ and subscribe to the magazine. You'll get that issue delivered to your door. That's wetflyswing.com FTJ. We're also supported by SoFly Gear, led by Chief Apparel Guru and Team USA Youth Fly Fishing member, James Carlin, who has a great clothing line that you're definitely going to love. SoFly's mission is to produce clothes that look good, perform well, and can be worn on and off the water. Plus, uh, most importantly, are manufactured uh, with under sustainable methods. They do this with bamboo. Bamboo is a, this shirt has a great mixture. I've been wearing it, it all around. It dries quick. It stays warm. It's soft. Uh, it's, it's good to go. Pretty amazing stuff. You got to check it out. So um, if you can, you can head over to wetflyswing.com slash SoFly and get started today. Uh, that'll help support uh, James and the podcast in one shot. That's wetflyswing.com slash S-O-F-L-Y. Okay, back to the show. Maybe just take us a year. So it's like NorCal, you know, Northern California. It seems like to me, you know, and I haven't spent a ton of time down there, but it's kind of becoming a little bit of a, like a Mecca, you know, I mean, obviously Colorado, Pennsylvania, Montana, there's some of these places, but you know, what makes, why is NorCal, um, you know, I guess when you look at trout or species, why is it so unique? And it seems like, do you feel like it's a kind of a little bit of a fly fishing Mecca? You know, I do actually. I know the guys at the fly shop in Reading have put a lot of time and effort into building it out. And I mean, nowadays you jump on the lower sack and it's uh, it's like a ride at Disneyland with all the <laughs> boats that are out there just one after another all day. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I do feel like Northern California is having its day a little bit here. And I think it has a lot to do with uh, not only the you know, we have kind of three things going for us. We have the a ton of different rivers. Yep. And so there's always somewhere that where something's happening. And we also don't we have pretty mild winters, so we mm. don't have to shut down when the yep. weather gets cold and rainy. Um, we just switch rivers and start fishing for different species. And uh, I think the third is that there's definitely a good community up mm. here that really goes towards, uh, you know, trying to promote it and get as many people outside as possible and enjoying all of this area. Yeah. So from the Sierras to the Valley Rivers, you can always find something going on. Yep. Yeah, I just think, I mean, California, obviously we're, it's funny we're recording this now because uh, we're recording it on the day of the election, right? So we've got this humongous uh, election going on. I always think of California as it's, I and mean, some people joke about it, but it's like, it's, a, it's, a, it's own country, right? It's, it's this, it's such a unique, you have a really diverse, a really conservation minded people, but it's also a very, um, 
kind of uh, more of a right wing, right? More of a conservative. It, it, what, how, how do you look at it? And, and again, we don't, we don't need to get into politics here, but, you know, <laughs> as far as what's going on there, how, how do you see that? Because, I mean, obviously there's a millions and millions of people. Um, you know, why is on the, on the protection, like on the native resources, do you feel like everything's fairly uh, progressive and protected up there? You know, I, I actually don't. No, you don't. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So we are, we are the, we have 40 million people in California. Yeah, 40 uh, the million. world's Yes. Damn. The world's fifth largest economy. If California was a country Jeez. and our primary export is agriculture. Oh, right. And a lot of people think, you know, if I were to ask you what the biggest industry in California was, a lot of people from outside of the state, they're like, oh, well, Hollywood or tech. And no, it's agriculture. So out here in the Central Valley, we are very much in a um, in an agriculture based economy. So 10 minutes north of us, there are thousands of acres of rice fields. And that's one of the huge exports um, outside of the Sacramento area. We've got the almond growers and the um, plums and pear, plums and prunes and all that yep. stuff that they do, um, you know, for like sun-kissed farms. Um, so, oh, wow. yeah, so most of the produce that Americans eat actually comes from California. That's that, well, and I and, and the fact that you say that, I just recently interviewed. Um, not sure if you've heard of Pete McBride, but he's a filmmaker, documentary. He, um, mm-hmm. yeah, he made the film Martin's Boat which documents the Grand Canyon. And I don't think about you guys as much because you're a little bit up north, but you think of Southern California. But, I mean, we talked about it. You know, he's raising awareness for the fact that the Colorado doesn't even make it to the ocean anymore um, because it's sucked dry by all the, you know, California, Nevada, all the cities that are using the water, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we have the same issues here. You know, right now the coastal cities are pushing for this Delta Tunnels project, and they want to take about half the water out of the Sacramento River and uh, pipe it all the way down to L.A. Oh, God. Yeah, it's um, we're fighting that one pretty hard. So we have a real dichotomy between the the politics of the cities and a politics of, uh, you know, the Central Valley and kind of the eastern part of the state. Oh, wow. Um, So. The conservation efforts here are, are tough for sure, yeah. and I try to raise as much awareness of, around it as possible because I think one of our biggest issues is uh, is water quality. Mm. Um, we have a lot of a lot of agriculture interests trying to uh, take the water from the fish, and they're dumping all of their pollutants back into the water down in the delta area. You know, we have advisories that you're not even supposed to eat fish that yeah. you catch out of the Delta because right. the mercury, mercury and heavy metal levels are just so bad. And so, um, yeah, it's it's kind of a fight Intense. every day. And we keep seeing our salmon and steelhead numbers dropping and water temps yeah. rising. And, you know, all of us uh, who are more conservation minded here on the, in the Central Valley are really concerned about what is going to happen to our fisheries. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And you guys are kind of on the end of it, which is the real struggle. I guess we're not talking about salmon and steelhead as much today, but you know, you're in the end of the, if you look at the Pacific rim, you know, the further you go South, the, the more impacts you see, obviously, I mean, you had steelhead salmon into Mexico back in the day. Um, I'm not sure about Southern California where they were out there, but I mean, those have been all extirpated and, and for the most part, and they're up to you guys, but you do still have a run, right? Well, where's your steelhead run now that, that you fish? 
Um, so I'm normally fishing for steelhead. Uh, it's all part of the Sacramento Basin. So uh, the Feather River and the American River mm-hmm. are two of the tributaries of the Sacramento system. And those still have some steelhead. Yeah. Um, the, the feather fish is a little bit better, a little bit better numbers than, than the American river, but the American river is really kind of one of my, my home river, I would say, because it's right here. It flows right through Sacramento Yeah, and, uh, it's the closest one for me to get to, to actually fish. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. Well, well, let, let, let's bring it back to, you know, I, I want to stay on that dry fly. Uh, yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, I want to keep, uh, <laughs> punching as many tips as we can to here. So, so let's just take us around again on the NorCal. So the rivers you fish, as far as dry fly, have we talked about all the main rivers? Is it mostly that Yuba system? Yes. Okay. So Yuba, and then take us through, you know, it's 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 kind of November, again, through the seasons. Is it a typical, I guess the wintertime you're not going to have it other than the, the squalas, but are you really focusing summertime for your dry fly action? Yeah, summer and fall are generally the best. Um, We can start getting into some good dry fly action in the Sierras. Once the snowmelt runoff kind of drops the rivers back into their normal-ish flows, um, you can still fish them when they're a little bit high and off color. And I've had some great days in those types of conditions kind of early in the the season. So let's say, you know, late May, early June. Um, is when it kind of gets started again. That's right. And yeah, and that'll go all the way through the summer and we'll switch, you know, from kind of those smaller caddis and mayfly hatches early on um, to, uh, you know, terrestrials in the heat of the summer in August, September. And then through October, we get back into, um, you know, more of the classic uh, caddis mayfly type of hatches. That's right. That's right. Well, let's talk about that. So on the flies, so, so the 222 uh, top two uh, flies, tips, resources, what, what are your, you know, again, you got caddis, you mentioned the elk here, but are there two flies that you pretty much, if you're going to the North Yuba in the summertime that you're not, you're, you know, you have to have, you're starting out with? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's an easy one, Dave. Yeah, I would not leave home without a size ten chubby uh, mini Chernobyl. Yeah. Okay, and I also would not leave home without a size ten uh, missing link. Oh, there you go. There you go. The that missing... fly. Yeah. Um. You yeah. had uh, what's his? Yeah, name? yeah. Mike. Mike. Mike uh, Mercer. Mike yeah. Mercer. <laughs> when you were interviewing him, he was like, "Oh yeah, I don't even take this thing out. It's like cheating. It I is. Know. It, that fly is incredible." Incredible. <laughs> I know. I wish I knew more about the aquatic. And it's interesting because, it, and maybe it isn't even an exact thing, but I, I'd have to go back and listen to that one with Mike to find out why it works so well. Because it's kind of just like an elk hair caddis. But why do you think it works so much? Why would it work better than an elk hair caddis? Um, I like it because it's got that down wing. So it's um, kind of a spent spinner All right. uh, type of presentation. And I also think that compared to an elk hair caddis, uh, because it has the down wing, the hook rides a little lower in the water. It's almost like the the yeah. butt of the fly sticks down into the film a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so I think you get a, a higher percentage of hookups hmm. to takes when you have that type of presentation riding just a little bit lower. Yep. And yeah, you know, it can, it can be, I like it in olive is the color. Okay. 
And it can be a caddis, it can be a mayfly. It's it's a really versatile fly. Yeah, that that was the point I was getting to. Is that feels like, you know, sometimes the best flies are those ones that they they're not matching anything exactly, but they're kind of the suggestive patterns, which which that is. And it's got something a little bit unique um, in it that just. Uh, and I I did the same thing. I I, I used it. <laughs> the first time I used it. It was it was a just a great pattern. Okay, so so we got the two flies, and then what about um, give us two dry fly tips? If you know we're out there in the water, let's, let's keep on the north Uba. We're just walking in there. We find a a little pool. Maybe you know there's some fish rising, but give us some dry fly tips. Yeah, so my two biggest dry fly tips are uh, managing your mending. Mm-hmm. You know, learning to mend that fly line all the way to the end of the fly line without disturbing the fly is a massive tip for getting into more fish yeah well what does that look like so if i if you're to cast i'm not sure if are you casting upstream across down or whatever you're doing but you know a typical mend. talk about the mend a little bit i mean first maybe talk about what i mean most people probably know what a mend is but describe the mend and the mend that you're doing or maybe a you know what maybe people are doing wrong yeah, well, actually, let me uh, let me jump ahead to one of my resources because oh, um, it speaks directly to this. Perfect. So on my bookshelf, I have here the John Judy book called Slackline Strategies for Fly Fishing. Oh, nice. And this book was a game changer for me and my dry fly fishing um, because there will be ta- there are many different scenarios where you need to get the right mend and the right kind of mend to get your fly to present correctly. Um, whether it be straight upstream, if you've got, you know, heavy shrubs or bushes on either side, so you're standing in the middle of the river and you're working directly upstream. There are situations where you um, might actually want to drop your fly straight downstream yeah. into a pool. And um, this book goes through all of the different types of mend and how to manage Mm -hmm. your slack, you know, everything from your curve casts to your S casts and, um, you know, reach casting to get to throw your mend into the cast. Yep. And so practicing all of those types of scenarios and um, figuring out the line between too much slack and not enough to get that drift. That's right. Yeah. What, what is, because I think about, um, you know, everybody knows not enough, it drags your fly, but what would be too much slack in your line? Like if a fish takes and you're not ready or how could you have too much? Uh, you can have too much slack when, yeah, you're, let's say I'm, um, I'm doing an S cast and I put too much of a wave yeah. into my cast. So now I have a bunch of extra line laying down on the water as the fly is drifting away from me. Um, if a fish takes it, no matter how fast I can be on the hook set, I still can't come tight to it in time. No, that's when you end up with too much slack. That's that's too much. And describe the, I mean, the S cast, describe that to somebody who doesn't know what an S cast, like how, it may, maybe it's hard to do. How, how would you do an S cast? Can you describe that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it sounds more complicated than it actually is. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a it's a downstream presentation um, where what happens is you when you stop the cast on the forward, you stop nice and high and finish your cast. And once the line starts to shoot, 
you wiggle your rod tip in a side-to-side manner. And as the line shoots, it creates an S pattern or, or like yep. a wave. And when the fly line lands on the water, you put slack into it such that when the fly drifts downstream, the line is just uncoiling. And so you can get a drag-free drift straight downstream. And you fish that until all of the slack is gone. That's it. Perfect. Perfect. And then, and then the reach cast is a, a similar thing, but maybe describe that one quickly as well. Yeah. So a reach cast is where you put either an upstream or a downstream mend into your cast, um, while you're casting it. So same thing, anytime you're doing these advanced, uh, mending techniques and advanced casting techniques, you have to finish your regular cast before you make your move. Hmm. Um, but let's say I want to fish a small pool, a small slow pool on the other side of the main current scene. This is where I need to do a reach cast because if I cast straight into that pool, as soon as my fly line hits the water, my fly is going to immediately be getting pulled uh, out of the spot by the line moving over that main current. Yep. So in that situation, I stop my cast and as the line is shooting, I lay my rod tip upstream and let the line shoot out at an upstream to downstream angle. So I'm adding an upstream mend into the cast itself. And I can buy myself a good three or four seconds more effective fishing time in that specific spot before my fly is getting pulled out of there. Nice. Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, perfect description. Uh, thanks for that. Um, so yeah, let, let's keep going on this. So I think we got the flies um, and tips. So that was a great start. What, what would be another tip, a dry fly tip? Another tip would be to um, fish with a little bit longer leader mm -hmm. than you think you might need or you might be comfortable with. I hear a lot of people talking about, you know, small stream, seven and a half foot leader should be fine. Um, I like to fish an 11 or a 12 foot leader mm -hmm. when I'm in smaller rivers. It's a little more tricky to manage um, the casting, especially in tight brush or something like that. Um, but it's just so much easier to get that really good presentation if you, say, take your nine foot tapered leader, um, which has about four feet of level tippet on the end of it anyway. What I do is I cut that back. So let's say I have a nine foot four X leader. What I'll actually do is I'll take it out of the package. I'll cut two feet of tippet off and then I'll tie on two, uh, four or five feet of five X tippet. Yeah. So I end up with an 11 or a 12 foot five X leader, um, off of that four X. So I'm basically adding another little taper section to it. Yeah. That's a good, that, that's, that's killer. And then, and on that, um, on the leader, so do you run a dry dropper much up there? Uh, you know, I do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Most of the time I'm running a dry dropper. Okay. So, so you might have a, um, like you said, the, um, one of your size 12 dry flies and then uh, describe the dry dropper real quick. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you can pretty much run that right from your tapered leader. Um, I do like to keep it as kind of a 4X uh, leader mm -hmm. if I'm doing dry dropper just to get it to turn over with those slightly larger dry flies. And then from the bend of the hook, I'm uh, adding eh, two feet yeah. of 
uh, 5x, sometimes 6x, depending on the fly size, uh, off the bend of that hook with a uni knot, and then down to a size 16 or 18, um, either an unweighted nymph or something with a really tiny bead. Gotcha. Gotcha. Perfect. You got, um, what's, uh, I hear the dog in the background. What, what's, yeah. what, what's, uh, what's the name of the dog? The dog's name is Ranger. He's oh. a little, uh, Chihuahua Terrier mix. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. Ranger. That's awesome, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> does he, does he go fishing with you? He does not. No. Uh, both of my dogs are afraid of fishing rods, so <laughs> they're horrible fishing buddies, unfortunately. There you go. There. Yeah, they're just hanging out, protecting the house then. <laughs> That's right. They're lazy, and our other dog is a pit bull. Oh, wow. So, yeah, she's especially lazy. <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. That's cool. All right, so uh, so good. So that's a good, yeah, long leader for sure. I go longer. 12 feet is uh, great. I mean, that's the thing. The, do you have any issues when you're doing the long leader uh, as far as playing landing fish because you've got the knots coming up through? Is that an issue for you at all? You know, it's not. Um, it's because, uh, you know, everything with those loop-to-loop connections these days, they're pretty, they run through the guides pretty yeah. well. Yeah, they do. And, um, you know, I think the big, here's another tip for your listeners. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if that fish starts to run, you need to, you need to bow the rod tip to those fish, um, and help that not slip through the guides mm-hmm. a little bit better. Um, yeah. I, that is, I do see that a lot with the beginners that I guide where, you know, they're rod Keep tip up trying to get the fish in the net and it makes a run and yeah, that that knot starts jerking through the rod, the guides. But yeah. if you just even just bow the rod tip a little bit, that thing, that connection is going to slide through without too many issues. Yep, yep, that's a good. And anybody that's fished for steelhead knows with the spay rod uh, knows that probably knows that tip. Or if they don't, they do now. Yes, <laughs> uh, definitely. That that's the biggest. Thing. I remember when I first started with the spay rod, it was just like, oh man this is so much harder than the old nine foot eight weight landing the fish, you know, at least in close. It absolutely is. And I noticed that as well when I first started, uh, spay casting and, uh, steel because I didn't even know what a spay rod was before I moved to California. Oh, right, Nobody right. does that in Colorado. <laughs> no. Well now, now that's probably changed right, with all the micro spay and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Trout spay is taking off. But, uh, the first time I saw that, yeah, I was, I was very confused. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's cool. Yeah. I had, um, James Millard on actually, I think today, the episode that went live is uh, OPST. He's the uh, manager for OPST, and we talked about some of their lines. Yeah, they have some stuff, some cool, definitely, you know, I mean, they're known as kind of the micro spay, but some cool, like, even stuff you could use for dry fly fishing, you know? Yeah, that's really interesting. I've been seeing that kind of popping up is uh, indicators and dry flies on yep. uh, those trout spay rods. Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Toy. That's cool. So, um, so yeah, so we got, so, and then finishing it up on the resources, you had a good, uh, great book there. You mentioned what, is there another resource you throw out there for dry fly fishing? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that all of the, all of the videos that Pete Kutzner has on casting oh, yeah. are excellent, um, through, you know, through Orvis, those guys do such a good job. Yeah. And, um, yeah, Pete is just an incredible caster. His videos make it super easy to, you know, visualize some of the things that we talked about today with casting. 
And that's a really great resource for anybody who's uh, trying to hone their craft and get into some of the more advanced techniques. Yep. That's it. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. And uh, obviously Orvis is a, they have a huge resource, not only, not only the podcast, but they got a ton of uh, great resources and, um, well, let's see. I guess I guess that's about all I had for anything else you want to give uh, you know um, a heads up on coming up for you in the next you know a year or so. Any, anything new? I mean, I, I was looking at your website. It looks like um, I'm not sure you you don't really blog over there, right? You, that's not like a blog. That's more of just a place to connect with you. Yep. Yeah, my website is mostly just for connecting. I do contribute some fish reports to uh, some of the. Some of the websites that are specific to our area, like NorCal Fish Reports, um, that's kind of where I contribute. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm also, of course, on social media. Um, But in the next year, it's going to be a little interesting. Uh, Things are a little bit up in the air with uh, how things are going to be going for my business, uh, because my wife and I are expecting our first kid. Oh, congrats. Yeah, Yeah, thank you. So we've got a baby due in April. And uh, that's going to completely change everything. <laughs> yeah, it will. It will. <laughs> so I'm in kind of a holding pattern right now as far as my business goes and uh, just going to try to make it all work next year. You're going to, yeah, you're going to love it. It's, uh, I've got a six and eight year old and now, well, it's funny, we were just getting ready for elk hunting and my eight year old, she just has this interest in hunting now and they'd never been and I got everything geared up and ready and then we were looking at the forecast over where we go and it the temperature just started it kept getting colder and colder and colder and finally it got into is like well it's going to be like 10 degrees over there do it do, do I want to take the eight-year-old and I'm and probably not so yeah that gets a little tough um I I did some did some deer and elk hunting growing up and yeah, yeah you know <laughs> yeah, Colorado. So, so that that's it the is. thing is that I think we we decided to cancel the trip, um, you know, at least this year. But that's the thing. It's the, the cool thing about the kids is, you know, I mean, gosh, you can take them even when they're young, right? I mean, as soon as they're, you know, tuck them in their little thing, you could take them out, and then you have a little period where, you know, there's going to be some struggles. But eventually, when they get that age where they're they're hunting and fishing with you, that's where it's like amazing. Yeah. No, I'm super excited for that. And, uh, yeah, speaking of hunting and cold weather, my buddy Jordan is out at his, uh, family's property in Montana right now. And he's been sending, he got a deer and an elk this oh. year. And I know I'm yep. super jealous of it. <laughs> Montana is just my buddy, Tyler, uh, Tyler, uh, Taffenbeck. He, he's, he's the, one of my good friends. He lives in Montana and he is a hunting, uh, you know, just crazy hunter. He, he loves fishing too, but he, I mean, those guys go out there and they, I don't know how many animals they get in the freezer, but oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's incredible, multiple, multiple animals of different, all different species. And so, yeah, Montana's good, but, uh, but good man. Hey, uh, this has been awesome today. I, I guess, um, maybe you, you want to leave us off, um, one random one. Do you want to answer a, uh, got a, got a random one for you? I, I always kind of, I love the, the sports, the music and things like that. Um, would you yeah, rather, would you, would you rather give us your, um, your favorite, uh, kind of music band or whatever, or, uh, the, the sport that you, if you were into sports back in your high school days or, or whatever? Yeah, so I was. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll go for the sport. Right. Um, I was I was a big hockey player for a while, and so um, always kind of have a soft spot for the Colorado Avalanche. That's uh-huh. my team, and uh, yeah, started. I played hockey, both ice hockey and roller hockey. Um, you know, for years and years. 
um, through high school until I joined the ski team and my coach didn't want me doing both because he knew I was going to get hurt skiing. <laughs> so oh, wow. yeah. I hung up the skates and, uh, and went all in on the skiing. <laughs> oh, oh, right. So you hung, you, yeah, you didn't want to get hockey was actually, but it turns out that skiing was, was pretty bad on your stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, my, my hockey coach didn't want us skiing because he knew we would get hurt skiing and then we'd be out for the games. <laughs> yeah. God, you know, my favorite quote, this is a, probably a lot of people might know about this, but my favorite uh, quote, hockey quote, it's Gretzky, right? It's the one don't, don't skate where the puck is going or don't skate where the puck is skate where the puck is going, going yes. to be, which, yep. which is kind of a quote for life too. Right. Um, uh, you know, would you hear, would you hear that quote? How, how do you, you know, thinking about your, what you have going with your, um, you know, your guiding business, does that, does that resonate with you? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's another Gretzky quote that, that resonates with me as well. Um, the one you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Oh, is that Gretzky? I thought that was Jordan. <laughs> that, that That's Gretzky. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was Gretzky. Yeah. I might be mistaken. Yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll fact check it for you. Have, That's right. Yeah, fact <laughs> check me, Dave. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll clarify it if, if you're off. But either way, but either jo- way Jordan yeah. Gretzky, they're both the basic. Yeah, but but in business especially, um, you know, if, if you're if you're passing to where the puck is, you're you're behind the eight ball. You're behind the the game. Yeah. And same with business. You know, if you're not looking towards the next thing you're doing, making your next plan, planning your next season, yeah. you're you're standing still and everyone is passing you by. Exactly. Exactly. All right, Jared. Hey, well, let's let's leave it off there until, uh, you know, we connect again. And I uh, just want to thank you for coming on today and, and sharing your knowledge. Uh, this is going to be a good dry fly season. I'm not sure where it's going to fit, but uh, I just talked to Kelly Gallup. So you're going to be somewhere around Kelly Gallup as far as this, so in the in the queue. So this this should be a good oh, one. Oh, good. No pressure. Dude. Yeah, yeah, no pressure. We'll, we'll, we won't, <laughs> compare, legend, you. We won't c- compare you to Kelly. But, uh, yeah, I had him on for a second, second time to chat. Uh, so a lot of people don't know it, but he actually wrote a book on dry fly fishing back uh, back in the day. So cool, man. All right. Well, we'll keep in touch and talk to you soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Dave. This was super fun. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 168. Uh, if you get a chance, uh, you're interested in steelhead fishing, you can head over to wetflyswing.com slash steelhead gear to grab the uh, winter steelhead gear PDF. This will get you going and see uh, some of the gear that I use to uh, stay stay warm during the winter season. So um, I want to thank you again today for stopping by to check out the show. I'm looking forward to catching up to soon. I hope maybe see you online or on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.